Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old School Grit, New World Ideas, Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. Hey, it's Kramer. My mission is simple, to make you money. Man Money is away today, but don't worry. I've got something special for you from my friends here at CNBC. Listen in. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. Jim Cramer is off this week, and this is On The Edge. Good to have you with us. Our top takes tonight, to hell and back. One year since the pandemic began, how we found a path forward and what comes next as stocks hit more record highs. EV overload as car makers race to electrify. Is there really enough demand to go around? Massa's moment, how the SoftBank Sage became one of the world's great investors after nearly losing it all. And why we didn't need sports after all. A hot take on what the COVID crisis taught us about our favorite athletes and the games we love. We do begin tonight with the year that changed everything. Good evening, I'm Scott Wapner. This is day 73 of the coronavirus crisis. Stocks taking another dive the day the World Health Organization declares a global pandemic. Growing questions tonight about whether our medical system is equipped to handle this outbreak. There's a recognition now that we're heading towards an epidemic in the United States. And business is really leading the way here. Governments have been slower to act. Not a recession itself. It feels like we're heading in that direction. Quite a year. Who can forget the video of a stunned Mark Cuban? The Dallas Mavericks owner learning on his cell phone that games were grinding to a halt. The first sign that things were about to be a lot different. Lockdowns followed. Restaurants and businesses shuttered. Americans told to stay inside. Death and despair overwhelming. And then vaccines and hope and a light at the end of the tunnel. Which brings us to our hottest take tonight. Did the lockdowns work or did they do too much harm to the economy? And where do we go from here? We welcome in now. Baltimore's former mayor, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, and media executive Tom Rogers. It's great to see both of you. Thank you for being here. Mayor, I begin with you. Hindsight, of course, is 2020. Did we do this the right way? We did it all as much wrong as we possibly could have. Uh, the question about whether lockdowns work is, is simple. Yes, they work when you actually have lockdowns that follow the science. But the problem is we didn't do it. We had a haphazard system, no national program. Uh, we politicized the, the healthy thing to do. And that left us where we are now. One of the, you know, we're way far down on the list of uh, countries that have done a great job responding to COVID. Tom, you know, there are some who say the lockdowns were simply too severe, that they caused too much harm to the economy. We just gave our second big shot of stimulus, $1.9 trillion. Florida never had a mask mandate. 
California had arguably some of the strictest measures in the entire country. As I look at the numbers right now, the death rate per 100,000 people, California 137, Florida 148. An obvious difference, but not an overwhelmingly dramatic one. And Florida's economy is now doing better than California and many places in this country. What does that tell you? Well, first, let's talk about what we learned that was on the positive side. We did learn that uh, the business community can adapt and adapt really well as it did. And we learned that technology and everything it offered both to consumer and businesses could uh, fuel a whole new level of productivity and new ways to work. And we certainly learned that on the uh, health and biology side that we could step up to a challenge and we were uh, we were up to it in terms of what our companies were able to do vaccine wise and i agree with the mayor what we also learned is we have government that is incredibly incompetent at both the federal and state level. Uh, we may think of ourselves as a uh, first world economy, but we certainly acted like a third world country when it came to handling this. And most remarkable, when it came to psyche, we ended up with uh, uh, almost half the country willing to reelect the guy who was most responsible for the greatest degree of incompetence. So we learned a lot on both sides there in terms why, of why then, Tom. But why, why then are, are, are the Wall Street Journal and other publications saying things like vindication for Ron DeSantis? He, of course, the governor of Florida, who said, quote, we said every business has the right to operate. You cannot close anything. Everyone has the right to work. You have to let people earn a living. He also required local school districts to offer in-person instruction five days a week. He said the union sued us, but we beat them in court. Isn't there something, Mayor, to what the governor has to say tonight? I, I think what he's saying is silly. He ignored the science and let people uh, play Russian roulette every day. Uh, and the, the fact that uh, people got lucky uh, isn't something to be proud about. I mean, he should have been a better model of what leadership is. Uh, it would be different if he coupled personal responsibility with science, if he coupled personal responsibility with modeling the behavior that would have kept people safe. Uh, what he did was just throw his hands up and uh, almost turned uh, Florida into the Hunger Games, you know, it, it, if you are, you know, every man for himself. And he just got lucky that not more people died. Tom, Dr. Gottlieb, Dr. Scott Gottlieb said the states that didn't implement as stringent measures, they did pay a price for it. And I don't think that you can explain that away. I mean, it, that sort of comment seems to agree with what you're saying. But there are a large number number of people in this country, Tom, who suggest that the lockdowns were too harsh. They were too severe. They went on too long and they dramatically impacted business. Well, you know, I'm much more familiar with uh, the New York to Florida comparison. And uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there that uh, Florida came through this with uh, less harm to the economy relative to, to New York. And you really have to take certain things into account. New York was hit first and much harder in ways that uh, the rest of the country should have learned from. So an awful lot of the deaths were before anybody knew what was going on and how to react to it. Uh, but also, when you look at uh, the differences in climate and what that means in terms of restaurants being able to cater more and outdoor activity, uh, not to mention a huge amount of migration that Florida's economy was the beneficiary of as people move there to uh, deal with uh, this during the pandemic when they didn't have to be around where their business was. There were a lot of things that Florida had going for it. Having said that, 
the uh, most interesting measure to me is deaths per recovered job, a rather pretty morbid statistic. But how many deaths did you have to incur uh, in order to get that kind of recovery? And the number of Florida deaths per recorded, uh, per, per recovered job relative to New York was about 78% higher. Yes, its economy and jobs did not sustain as big a loss, but that's because of a lot of factors that are not apples to apples. Sure. When you look at the price paid, and every death is a terrible price paid, the price paid per job, if you're going to use that as a measure of economic benefit, was horrendous. It, it, your points are certainly well taken. It's a shame that we're, we're even having a conversation where we have to acknowledge that you've had 525 plus thousand people losing their lives, our, our, our fellow citizens who are, who are no longer with us. It shouldn't have been that way. I think we can all agree with that. Mayor, I want to sort of look at the path forward, if I may, with you. You, you know how difficult it is to operate a city and certainly one through a pandemic. Target today, for example, the big retailer, the largest employer in downtown Minneapolis, moving out of the city center building, cutting its office space by a third. Is this going to be the new normal that mayors all over this country are now going to have to deal with? I definitely think it's going to be the new normal. And I think uh, the winners uh, will be mayors that figure out ways to create incentives uh, for people to locate there, as well as uh, mayors who spent the last, uh, you know, decade, decade or so uh, focusing on the quality of life in their cities. Uh, I, we've, we've known that the migration towards cities has, has started to happen. Um, the cities that will win are the ones who've taken the, uh, the best advantage of increasing the quality of life, increasing safety, increasing their school, uh, improving their schools and putting their cities in the best uh, possible place uh, to compete. Tom, lastly to you, the Hyatt CEO was on CNBC today and said they would not be requiring vaccines to stay in their hotels. I'm wondering what you think about the issue of vaccine passports, whether you think businesses, your former executive, of course, whether executives and, and bosses should require that all of their employees get vaccinated to go back to work. Every single person who doesn't take a vaccine is imposing a social cost on the rest of society. And I don't think there's anything wrong at all, particularly employers who are picking up the health care costs of employees to say that's a requirement of work. I think the notion of a vaccine passport right now is a little tough because we don't have a chance for everybody to have been fully vaccinated. But once we have the opportunity for everyone to be fully vaccinated, the idea that public spaces, transportation companies, hotels want to judge people on whether or not they've availed themselves of something that will protect not only themselves, but the other people who they are around in those establishments. I think every business has a perfect right to do that. We'll see you both in uh, just a bit. We promised hot takes tonight. You gave us both did uh, a little bit of that. One thing that has come all the way back and then some, the stock market. New record highs today again for the Dow, the S&P and the Russell. A year ago, we, of course, plunged, finally hitting a low on March 23rd. CNBC contributor Josh Brown with me now on how far we've come and what's next. Josh, it's good to see you tonight. If I told you then we'd be where we are now, would you have believed me? Probably not. I don't think in uh, on March 11th, 
when we were watching NBA games get suspended and hearing about Tom Hanks being infected, I don't think I could have imagined the level of coordinated policy coming from the Treasury and Fed. And I even further don't think I could have predicted the behavior of millions of households, which was to pay down credit card debt and add to their savings as much as they went to online you know, shopping sites. So we've just seen this explosion in household wealth and an explosion in the amount of available cash that's out there in the system. And a lot of this by design. And the stock market has absolutely garnered, some would say, more than its fair share of that available cash. And the result is what you see on your screens all day. There were some certainly dark days um, and nights. We remember it well. What's the investing lesson in what we've endured over the last year, do you think? Well, I think the investing lesson is that very often the reaction of markets will be counterintuitive and can only be explained in hindsight. So I just told you a very good story about uh, why the Dow has been able to recover and the NASDAQ and uh, all sorts of other assets from commodities to cryptocurrencies. That story only makes sense now with the benefit of looking at the whole trajectory of events leading up to it. If I had told you this story uh, in March or April of last year, it would have been harder for you to accept. And now, of course, we all say, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what happened. So it's very important to understand that there is a huge range of things that could happen, even as the result of a crisis. And you can go back to any crisis in history and find things that at the time would have seemed hard to believe would take place that, in fact, did end up taking place. And this is just the latest example in a whole litany uh, of those types of outcomes. So being open-minded as an investor and understanding the human spirit and the determination on the part of investors to find ways to make money is a very big uh, tool in your kit. Uh, and it's, it becomes very helpful in the darkest days to recognize that people are going to find a way to invest and make money uh, based on almost any occurrence. The, the hard part is, is now what, right? And you are as optimistic as anybody I've heard come on this network about a coming boom and all of the pent-up demand that is ready to roar uh, as more people get vaccinated. Well, planet Earth lost a big chunk of its population 100 years ago during the, uh, during the Spanish flu pandemic, which is really the closest thing we have to as an analog to what we've just lived through. And the Roaring Twenties followed soon after. And of course, as many similarities as there, as there are between then and now, there are just as many differences. So it's tough to say, yes, this will be the Roaring 2020s um, and, and just have people say, yeah, that makes sense. That'll happen. There are, of course, headwinds here as well. Um, but I do think it's important to just look back on that and say, in, in the winter of, 20, uh, of, uh, of 1919, probably would have been very tough to picture the next decade being a booming decade. One thing that's really important to point out, Scott, um, you know, we, we've got the, the, the Depression babies, and everybody's familiar with this idea that people who grew up in the wake of uh, the crash of 1929, they were very frugal, and they were very fearful of uh, financial markets, and they were very worried about spending, and they never spent money on themselves. We now have the opposite situation. The big takeaway from the pandemic recession, some would call crash, um, is, is not that we should be fearful and frugal. Everyone went the other way. This was the recession where everyone bought a boat. And it's really unprecedented in American history to have us emerge from a recession with household balance sheets in the shape they're in now. 
which is phenomenal. One of the main reasons that we've seen a huge rally in bank stocks, for example, is the fact that there just wasn't this cleanup required. You didn't have this massive wave of losses occurring across the whole economy. You didn't have the mass bankruptcies in corporations. You didn't have personal bankruptcies and foreclosures. You had the opposite. You had a housing boom. So I can't tell you definitively what the result of this will be because we've just never seen it before. And I think being honest about that and having some humility about how uncharted this all is is going to be really important as well. We will see you back with us in just a few moments. Coming up, the electric vehicle craze keeps going and going and going. But will all this hype run out of juice? We're just getting started here on The Edge. Stay with us. Has COVID-19 blown the whistle on America's love affair with sports? In our war of words, we ask if sports business as we know it may be going the way of AstroTurf. Plus, SoftBank is cashing in one of its crown jewels. What do investors need to know about the man behind the biggest foreign IPO since Alibaba? He's tonight's main character. And the EV space has been hell on wheels. But are some of these disruptors headed for a stop sign? Nothing but green lights and open road here on The Edge on CNBC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at Chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. We're back on the edge. Tesla and Neo shares with a big day today on the back of a couple of positive analyst calls. Tesla, the best performing stock, by the way, in the S&P 500 from the March 2020 lows, up an astounding 700 percent. It speaks not only to optimism about that company's future, but the spark the electric vehicle market has given investors. The question is, is there enough demand to go around to satisfy all of that EV envy? We're back with the mayor and Josh Brown. Uh, what do you think, uh, mayor? Is there too much hype to go around here to, to too many players? Well, I think the, the jury is still out on electric vehicles. Uh, we know it's the wave of the future. We just don't know the trajectory or you know how long out into the future will it be before we are uh, fully adopted with electric vehicles. I mean, a big question we have to ask is, are cities or are jurisdictions going to uh, do the work to create the infrastructure for them to be, uh, for EVs to be widely used. And we know with challenging uh, budgets in uh, cities and states across the country, um, you know, making sure there's EV infrastructure is not on the top of the list. So, so Josh, I mean, are we, are we getting ahead of ourselves for all of the reasons that 
The mayor just said there's another company today that was ripping higher, Canoe, because they've got a pickup for both commercial and for regular consumer use. So what do you think? You follow this space closely, I know. Yeah, I would just say uh, the, the, the public and, and government cooperation is going to be important, but I think private investment is going to make it so that uh, the revolution is, is undeniable. There's just too much money now at stake, and every major OEM in the automobile sector is focusing almost exclusively uh, on anything other than the internal combustion engine. You can't find a major car manufacturer in any part of the world that's not betting the ranch on electric. So it, that's not the future. It's the present. And uh, I think it's very important to just conceptualize how much room for growth there still is. About 3% of cars sold last year uh, were electric vehicles. That number will be 25% by 2025. It'll be 50% by 2040. And I think those estimates may, be, may even be conservative. And government support is a big reason for why that's going to happen. The infrastructure challenge that the mayor uh, mentions, though, is really important because along with this electric vehicle uh, movement is an autonomous driving movement. And that's where you're really going to need buy-in from states, cities, towns, municipalities. Uh, Between Waymo and Cruise, last year during the pandemic, they probably drove about 2 million autonomous miles um, in the state of California alone. And we know that robo-taxis will be launched within the next few months in some major cities around the country. And that part, I think, is going to be even trickier. And I'd love to hear what the mayor thinks about those rollouts happening in cities like Baltimore. Not to mention, the mayor, you speak of what you know. You wanted to electrify, so to speak, Baltimore while you were mayor. Yes, I I did spend uh, a a decent amount of time making sure that there was uh, electric vehicle EV infrastructure in our public, uh, publicly owned parking lots uh, and on um, city property. Uh, so I am, you know, I, I'm a believer in the, uh, the future of EVs. Um, but I would say the autonomous vehicles cause a, uh, a challenge. Um, there's some, there are cities across the country who are struggling, believe it or not, with uh, things like the, the scooters that are for rent, uh, the bikes that are for rent. Uh, imagine the struggles that are going to happen when you try to integrate autonomous vehicles. You know, every um, every city is in uh, San Francisco. Every city is in Houston, is in uh, Austin. You know, where you know they they focus on innovation and uh, technology or you know very early adopters. So I think it's going to be um, a, a learning curve for these uh, jurisdictions to to come on board with uh, autonomous vehicles especially if uh, it means that jobs go away. Yeah, not to mention the fact, Josh, you you know this too. It's not like Ford and General Motors are going to sit around idly and just wait for the Teslas or the Neos or the this, that, or the other uh, EV company to go win the whole race, right? That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of optimism around those two companies. Yeah, I think it's very unlikely that any one company will even win 10% of the whole race. I think... uh, the auto, the, 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 there are enough players in the auto market that will get this shift right, that consumers will have plenty of choices. Neo is tiny. I know the stock is very popular on Robinhood, so we end up talking about it a lot. I think they've sold like uh, 20, 30, 40,000 cars maybe. It's really not that important. What makes it interesting is that their business model is battery as a service. So rather than charge an existing battery, you're swapping out a battery. 
uh, in a matter of minutes and then being on your way. And as a result, the, the initial price for the car is cheaper and they're still getting the, the buyer is still getting that battery subsidy uh, from the Chinese government. So that's a novel business model. But as far as being an auto manufacturer, it's not terribly important in the grand scheme of things. Volkswagen's going to be huge. BMW and Benz are going to be huge. Um, every, every major manufacturer in the U.S. is going to have significant number of models coming out that are EV. We're already seeing the Ford Mustang uh, electric version eat into what would have or ordinarily been Tesla's market share. So I, I think what's important to keep in mind is that there will be winners, but everyone can't win, right? Uh, and just as at the turn of the last century, there were 150 companies making automobiles, uh, and we ended up with three of them by the 1980s. So you're, you're not going to see a million different SPACs come public, buy an auto, uh, an electric uh, vehicle, and all ride off into the sunset happily. There will be winners and losers. I just think that there's room for a bunch of new companies to be winners. Uh, and it's a really exciting time to be trying to decide who's who at these early stages. All right, Josh, you'll stick with me. Mayor Rawlings, Blake, it's been great having you. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. All right, Josh, you stand by. Up next tonight's main character, is Masa-san the greatest investor in the world? Or has he been clouded by blurry vision? On the Edge, we'll be right back. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. We're back on the edge. Here are some of the personalities making headlines for us today. Oil giant Royal Dutch Shell appointing a new chairman. Former BHP Group CEO Andrew McKenzie will lead the oil giant through its hoped transition to low carbon energy. Pfizer reporting its COVID-19 vaccine blocked 94 percent of asymptomatic infections and 97 percent effective in symptomatic cases in real world use in an Israeli study. I know it is our vaccine is blocking, uh, uh, is protecting against asymptomatic infections uh, at 94%. That the CEO Albert Borla there. Novavax shares also surging today after reporting 96% efficacy for mild, moderate and severe COVID cases and 100% protection against severe disease. Finally, one of our previous main characters making more news, another aggressive stock market bet from ARK's Kathy Wood adding more than 500,000 shares of the hot new IPO, Roblox. See what happens there. We do have breaking news now on President Biden's first primetime address tonight. Our Kayla Tausche learning what the president is going to say. Kayla. 
Well, Scott, President Biden this evening will be laying out a vision of a path toward normalcy for the country that begins during the July 4th holiday. A senior administration official says that the president will make clear that this is incumbent on Americans continuing to wear masks, socially distance and get vaccinated when it is their turn. And that the hope is that around that time, small gatherings of neighbors, families and friends uh, can resume toward normal, although it will still be some time before large indoor gatherings uh, will be sanctioned. To that end, uh, the president is expected to say that the CDC, as it approaches the July 4th holiday, will begin releasing official guidance for travel for workplaces to reopen and for places of worship to gather safely as well. In the meantime, President Biden will also say that he, through the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, will direct states to remove eligibility requirements for all American adults by May 1st, that the administration is confident enough in its vaccine supply and its previously laid out target of having all American adults who want a vaccine to be able to get one by the end of May, uh, that it will be able to tell states that by May 1st, all American adults should be eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine in every single state in this country. Finally, President Biden will also uh, announce that he will be increasing the number of vaccination sites in hard-hit areas, as well as increasing the number of people who are able to administer vaccines to include people like dentists and other healthcare workers who are not currently cleared to do so. The goal is to get shots in arms, and that's what we're expected to hear from the president tonight. Scott? Kayla, big news. May 1st. We'll keep watching for that. That's Kayla Towsey. 90 minutes from now, the president speaking in the East Room of the White House. Shepard Smith has that in his show from 7 o'clock onwards tonight. Now to tonight's main character, South Korea's Kupang, what some call that country's Amazon going public today. The largest foreign IPO since Alibaba shares surging 40 percent in their debut. A monster exit for the SoftBank Vision Fund run by one of the world's wealthiest but stealthiest investors, a man named Masa-san. Deirdre Bosa here now to introduce us to tonight's main character. Dee, what do we need to know about Masa? <laughs> well, to quote Mark Twain, reports of his death have been greatly exaggerated. When the dot-com bubble burst, Masa-san lost $70 billion dollars. And he thought his company would go bankrupt. He is also the man behind the rise and fall of WeWork, one of the most controversial startups of the last decade. Masasan, he poured billions and billions into this startup as many in Silicon Valley questioned it, only for it to spectacularly combust and pull its IPO, losing most of its value along the way. However, Masasan has also been called the Warren Buffett of tech, and led one of the greatest investments of all time, $20 million into Alibaba back in 2000 for a stake that would eventually be worth, get this, more than $150 billion. He is currently in the middle of another hot streak. Scott mentioned Coupang, a more than $25 billion return in just five years for his vision fund. A few months ago, its DoorDash investment returned about $11 billion in just two years. And if the IPO markets stay hot, the hits could continue. But with Masasan Scott, it is always a roller coaster ride, and we never know just how many lives he has left. One thing that does stay constant, though, is his flair for presentation. During the depths of the COVID lockdowns last year, he told investors to beware the valley of coronavirus. And what you see here is an image that he showed of unicorns. Those are $1 billion startups or more 
falling headfirst into a ditch. Now he is talking about entering an investment harvest phase, a time to reap his rewards, sell his winners. And he did this standing in front of an image of a golden goose laying eggs with music from the Nutcracker playing in the background. And Scott, do you hear that? I think that might be the sound of Masa-san counting his latest golden goose, the billions. So unique. As big of an investor as he is, he is not afraid at all, and you allude to this, to swing for the fences. And that's what he does, knowing he's not going to have a hit every single time as long as he has enough of them. That's exactly it. I mean, he's not afraid to bet big, and that's why he can be such a polarizing figure in the investment world, right? Swings big, misses with WeWork. Swings big, coupon is a huge win. However, his story, Scott, is far from done, right? Because you can make a string of really bad investments and potentially go bankrupt. But for Vision Fund, for SoftBank, his company, they're really in a golden era right now. Stock recently hit an all-time high. So he's proving his worth, but it was only about a year, two years ago that people were predicting his downfall. Yep. D, thanks. Deirdre Bosa for us on Masasan tonight. Back with us, Josh Brown, Tom Rogers. Good to have you both. Wondering who the best corporate investor of all time is as I turn to you all again. Tom, what, what do you make of, of the, the way Masasan invests? He makes big bets, spectacular wins, some spectacular misses as well. Well, it's hard to characterize as the greatest investor, uh, somebody who uh, always has associated with his name roller coaster and recovering from a series of missteps. Um, he's obviously uh, had some some big hits overwhelmingly for a while. SoftBank was uh, a function of Alibaba and uh, his large Japanese telecommunications interests. So it was highly concentrated in terms of where the value and success was based on a couple bets there. And, uh, you know, I think it's a little early to uh, really assess him. Let's, uh, let's see where normalized interest rates go. Let's see where a non-COVID world goes in terms of uh, some of those tech interests. Um, he had a very tough time after, uh, you know, Venture uh, Fund One went down to where it did, getting any of the uh, uh, institutional investors back into a second fund who are all taking a pause and, and, and watching carefully. Uh, when you look at that venture fund, I think it's just about back, maybe a bit ahead now of where it was in 2000. And so relative to a whole bunch of other investors over that kind of 20 year period, hard to put him at the very top. Yeah, he's proven a lot of people wrong, though, Josh. He continues to do that. In fact, as closely as you follow Berkshire Hathaway, like I know you do, some call SoftBank the Berkshire of tech for the way that they invest. I mean, he, do you see similarities? No, none at all. Uh, I think uh, you'd be better off just buying uh, far out of the money calls on the NASDAQ because that's the performance of uh, what, what seems to be happening with his. Inv- he got bailed out this year. You have this massive IPO boom. He just happens to have all these venture backed things that he can now take public. Um, he said in November, I think he said it on CNBC, he definitely said it at a deal book conference uh, that he was uh, planning to liquidate $40 billion worth of. Uh, worth of assets in 2020 and ended up liquidating $80 billion instead. Uh, so, that, so obviously the markets did not cooperate with that call. Uh, mostly what he did was uh, unload things in sales, um, you know, co- companies that he owned outright in sales. It wasn't really a stock call. But, 
rising and falling with the Nasdaq is not terribly impressive. There are many tech investors who are way better at this than he is. The Tiger Cubs come to mind, Julian Robertson, Chase Coleman, etc. So uh, having a lot of money, spraying it around in a shotgun approach, accidentally landing on an Alibaba and riding that, I, I guess it's impressive. Uh, maybe right he deserves right maybe time. he deserves a little more credit than that. But maybe, frankly, we should be talking more about Tencent, really. Tencent and the, the investments that it has made. The unrealized gains last year from its minority stakes in almost 100 publicly traded companies amounted to $120 billion, roughly six times its estimated profit for 2020, that according to the information. They have investment gains big time in Pinduoduo, JD.com, Snap, Neo, some of the companies we've talked about tonight, and others. Maybe, Josh, they deserve more of our attention. Scott, he's th- Scott they're, they're, buying, they're buying tech stocks in a tech bull market. The best corporate investors of all time are people like John Malone, Catherine Graham at the Washington Post, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger. These are people who invested in many sectors across the whole spectrum of potential assets. They invested in time of rising rates, falling rates, stagflation, wartime. These are people that put money to work profitably uh, across every industry and rescued companies. And this is the exact opposite. This is interest rates at zero. In Japan, uh, JGBs have been yielding almost zero for like 30-something years. This is just, um, this is like uh, rolling the dice over and over and over again with a set of loaded dice because central banks around the world right. continue to inflate and pump up bubbles. So I don't think that, look, I would trade places with him, okay? I would take the gig. Yeah, it's not sure. personal. I'm sure you would. If we're I'm talking sure about the would. best investors, he's not on the Mount Rushmore. All right, I got to bounce. How about a category beyond uh, best corporate investor, best, best corporate investor insight on a daily basis for Josh there? I think, uh, I, I th- oh, I think wow. he could win that. I've got to leave it there. i got to leave it there. Tom Rogers, I'll see you soon. Josh, <laughs> I'll see you back on halftime, I know, soon. Coming up, does America need Live sports, that's what we're asking. The Atlantic's Jamel Hill joining me. She has a hot take tonight on the business of the sports leagues when On the Edge comes back. Coming up, armed with iPhones and itching to span the globe, will remote-ready wanderers make leisure the future of travel? Who stands to benefit? And Americans are tuning out sports in record numbers. Jamel Hill says the emotional connection to big money athletics has been grossly overestimated. And she joins us next on The Edge. Welcome back to On The Edge, 15 minutes away from the news with Shepard Smith. Shep, good evening to you. What's coming up tonight? Scott, good evening. President Biden set to give his first primetime address in just more than an hour from now. That speech marking one year since COVID changed all of our lives. We'll have the very latest. And then at 8 Eastern, full coverage and analysis of the president right here. Plus, breaking news now on CNBC. The New York State Assembly Speaker has just authorized an impeachment investigation into Governor Andrew Cuomo. This after a new bombshell accusation against the governor that he groped a female aide. Police now made aware as the governor faces growing calls for him to resign. And reunited at last, the first hugs of the newly vaccinated, finally able to see and hold their loved ones after oh so long. 
Scott, the news just minutes away. I love those pictures. Can't wait. Everybody can't wait to do that. Shep, we'll see you at the top of the hour. Thank you. Well, we began tonight's show remembering the day the NBA stopped, then all sports did for months. But when they came back without fans, ratings didn't follow. Some say revealing a lot about the connection we thought we had with sports. Jamel Hill, contributing writer for The Atlantic, is with me now. She's the author of a provocative new column titled America Didn't Need Sports After All. Jamel, welcome. It's good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate what it. What did you learn through your reporting for this piece? Well, when you look at the ratings for some of the major sporting events, uh, from the Super Bowl to the Masters to the NBA Finals to the NHL Finals, what you saw, and even in some weeks in the NFL and certainly in college football, uh, what you saw was that this idea that sports was going to help us feel some sense of normalcy, that it was going to kind of help us get back on track, maybe more emotionally than obviously what was going on in our lives, that just kind of didn't happen. Um, this is not to say that people did not watch sports. Of course, that they did. Their NFL in bad weeks will do numbers that most programs would kill for. That's for certain. But this idea that pushing to have sports was supposed to do something for us, I'm not sure that it did. And um, certainly the data backed that up. And, and I'll just say that, you know, it was a little weird because you definitely had sports happening at different times where they didn't normally happen. You know, the NBA finals being in October doesn't normally happen. And, and that was some of it, too. But I think with the explosion of streaming, um, I think also with sports being more of a reminder of what we lost, I think you saw more people tuning out than I think people probably expected. I have to say, I, I was shocked by the drop off in ratings. I couldn't wait for sports to get back. There was nothing else to do. You're in the house. You're missing sports. They come back. I watched a lot. I was shocked. Some of the, we're going to show some of the numbers here. You can react to them. I know you mentioned them being down. NHL Finals, 61%. NBA Finals, 51%. Kentucky Derby, 49%. U.S. Open Tennis, 45%. Even the Super Bowl, the sacred Super Bowl, was down. I guess the question is, does this come back once we get back to whatever normal is, Jamel? I think it could for sure. I mean, sports, this was a big anomaly, a big disruption that none of us have ever experienced. But here's the part we overestimated. One, sports is very much a social activity. A lot of people go to bars, they gather at people's houses. It's something we like to do together. I mean, a big reason why I wanted to be a sports journalist is because I think about all the ways we divide and segregate ourselves in this country. We don't worship together. Most of us don't eat together other than people that are like us. Sports is something that brings everybody together. You could be a Lakers fan from a cross-section of different economic, racial, and gender backgrounds, right? And that social aspect is huge. We also feed off the traditions and the pomp and circumstance around sports. I mean, what does co a college football game mean if you don't see the tailgating and some of the other things that you see? The visuals weren't there. I mean, the Buffalo Bills make the playoffs after having not been at in it and God knows how long. And I miss seeing Buffalo Bills fans throw themselves through tables. Like I didn't get to see that because there was no tailgate shots to show. And you're looking in the crowd, you see virtual fans, you see cardboard fans. That's not the same. And so while I did get a lot of enjoyment from, from seeing things, um, there's a reason why Michael Jordan's The Last Dance did so well. One, it is Michael Jordan, but it also took back took everyone back to that time that where we most love sports and we were able to relive a lot of that. So the nostalgia play works because it reminded us that we weren't in the pandemic and what things used to be like. So uh, listen, when the, the crowd is able to come back, 
when we're able to see the pageantry of sports, I think we will see a lot of these numbers maybe increase. But, you know, listen, live sports now is competing with streaming service. They're competing with a lot of people's attention. It's it's not the same game that it once was where people will for sure lock in. Doesn't matter. I think right now people, especially this younger generation, as I noted in my column, Gen Z, they're much more precious about how they spend their time. It was a good read, good conversation as well. Appreciate your time tonight. Jamel Hill, thank you. Talk thank to you, you again soon. After the break, some of the stories keeping us on the edge of our seats tonight. Plus, are you traveling for business or leisure or maybe both? The leisure boom in tonight's Cutting Edge. Another great market day. Welcome back. Stocks hitting all-time highs all across the board. The Dow, S&P, Russell yet again. More indices on pace now for their best week in a month. MasterCard, Visa, Goldman Sachs all hitting new all-time highs today. There are the numbers. See what tomorrow brings on that Friday. Coming up, why the travel industry is betting on something called leisure. The cutting edge is next. Welcome back to On the Edge. The next big thing or the next big flop? This is the cutting edge of business tonight. The rush to plan and book your next big trip. One year after the lockdown, travel searches are surging. The likes of Marriott and Airbnb leaning into the idea of leisure. That's the combination of business and leisure travel. The trend is based off of workers' ability essentially to work from anywhere amid the pandemic. But as the vaccine rollout continues and schools and economies open back up, will leisure be a sustaining source of revenue for the travel industry? Here to break that down is Laura Foreman, columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Laura, it's good to see you. No wonder Airbnb and the Marriott's and everybody else are, are all over this. Sure, come stay at our hotel for two weeks instead of three days. You can work, you can play. That sounds great to us. It sounds great to them, Scott, and thanks for having me, by the way. I'm not sure it's going to sound so good to consumers. One thing I want to start out by saying is that people absolutely are psyched to get back in travel. They're really aching to do it. Um, Airbnb's Brian Chesky said recently that in an internal survey, people are more excited to travel than they are to eat at restaurants. That's not too striking of a stat, but I feel like he could have gone way bigger than that. There was a survey by Trivago in January, uh, and bear with me here. It noted that a quarter of the people it surveyed in the U.S. and the U.K. would give up their whole life savings to travel now. 40% said that, and this is my favorite part, would give up sex for a whole year. 20% said they'd dump their partners and half said they quit their jobs. So there's, there's a ton of interest in travel. I think the thing that these companies are not quite appreciating is that leisure necessitates you generally bringing your family on your trips with you. And there's a huge difference between a vacation and a trip. This was outlined to me as a new mom really spoke to me in a 2017 HuffPost article, and they talked about the fact that if you're going on a traveling with your extended family or with your kid, it is not a vacation, it is a trip. I think leisure is probably going to turn out to be a pipe dream and is not going to be nearly as relaxing or as productive as people. <laughs> yeah, good luck trying to do this all with, with, with a family. Uh, what about if people go back to the office? I, I think, yeah. I, and I wonder if people are underestimating we're going to want to do everything, including maybe actually going back to an office building. Yeah, it's shocking, right? Like actual interaction with people at work and getting things done and being a little bit more collaborative like that. One interesting stat I'd point out there is that as much as people like to talk about, you know, the death of the big cities, New York and the Bay Area. I did a column last week on how the Bay Area exodus wasn't actually an exodus. U.S. Postal Service data showed that last year, less than 4% of people actually filed for an address change. 
And of those, 75% just moved to a different county. So maybe people want more space, but they're definitely hedging their bets against remote work. I think people think they're going back into the office and they definitely are putting their kids back in school. I also wonder how the ages factor into all of this. Younger people may be more up for a leisure type thing where maybe older travelers, not so much. Laura, thanks so much. It's good to have you with us tonight. Interesting read, interesting thoughts and a hot take is what we like. All right. Laura Foreman, of course, with The Wall Street Journal. Thank you so much for watching The Edge tonight. We'll be back here tomorrow, six o'clock Eastern. We've got the president speaking tonight at 8 p.m. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to CNBCMakeIt.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at CNBCMakeIt.com slash courses.